Hello and welcome to All Aboard, the UK's first podcast dedicated to transport, data and innovation, brought to you by ODI Leads. I'm Neil McClure, Head of Transport Innovation at ODI Leads. The subject of today's episode is Mobility as a Service. I'm joined by Beata Kubitz. Hello, Beata. Hello. Beata is an independent transport consultant and mass mobility as a service evangelist. Beata is also a published author and thought leader in the field of mobility as a service. She is also Director of Communications at Travel Spirit, an openly governed transport community for collaborative open source projects and named the engine oil of mobility as a service. In 2017, Beata wrote the UK's first annual Mobility as a Service survey, published by Landor Links, and the 2018 version is due out shortly. So, she's very well qualified to talk to us today about Mobility as a Service. Welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Neil. <laughs> so, Mobility as a Service, MASS for short, as we'll call it through this episode. Um, tell us a bit about it. What is it? Uh, what's the concept? And what do we need to know about it? So mobility as a service is quite a broad concept. And I think this is one of the interesting things is that there are different groups of people that are talking about it in slightly different ways. So those those definitions get blurred and sometimes confused. And I think on the one hand, we have people working in transport authorities and the public sector, people who have got issues around congestion and air quality and, and are trying to make networks function that see mobility as a service as an integrated, seamless, multimodal transport option for people um, that's maybe facilitated through an app, but maybe not. Um, but it's more about technologically enabling connected journeys. Whereas on the more sort of commercial side, you see um, you know, new mobility modes springing up and being talked about as mobility as a service. The automotive industry looking at autonomous vehicles as maybe providing mobility on demand, mobility as a service. Um, you've got, we've got ride sharing, ride, ride hailing like Uber and Lyft and those sorts of things. Um, so uh, we, we see quite a lot of blurring in the language and sometimes it's better, it's quite a good idea to interrogate exactly what you're talking about so that you know that you're talking about something in common rather than slightly cross purposes. So if I'm a, a punter, a, a customer out there on the street, maybe I use the bus sometimes, maybe I use the train sometimes, maybe I've got the Uber app um, or other taxi uh, uh, ride sharing companies. What could this mobility as a service mean to me in how I do my day to day travel? Well, I think that and the, the kind of commercial offers that we've got at the moment that are sort of trying to break into this market, like um, Mass Global, the WIM app. If you live in the West Midlands, you have um, a, an app that enables you to access West Midlands transport, actually in conjunction with an RFID card. So it's not fully on your mobile phone yet. And you uh, can also book taxis through that app through the um, with in conjunction with Get. You can uh, get capped car hire through your app. You can uh, come the come the autumn. You'll be able to book and ride a next bike. So it's it's having more than just the public transport options. It's having a much broader sort of set of transport opportunities. And having it all in one place where you can access information about it and pay for it presumably yeah. and various other bits like that yeah so it's a seamless well more or less seamless booking and um, information uh, journey planning service and then we also see you know some of the things that um, have been tried out trialed by uh, different um, test beds so in, we've got the um, uh, Navigogo app which was developed for students in Dundee and that was looking at providing something that was very specific to their needs so um, reduced price travel 
they were interviewed about what they actually wanted and what they actually wanted was to know how to split taxi fares between them because they quite often were sharing taxis. Uh, it integrated the next bikes. It uh, didn't integrate buses, which is one of the issues that we'll probably come to later. Uh, but it, it looked at how they would change their transport modes and the kind of enthusiasm they'd have for traveling uh, and and seeking out new horizons and it was really quite successful from that point of view so it was kind of functional um, uh, mobility as a service uh, for students you you've mentioned a couple of examples already in the uk so west midlands birmingham area the dundee example mm-hmm. um, i've also heard about some stuff that may um, be piloted or in plan in Manchester. Um, what is happening in the UK at the minute and, and what is what are the conditions or the environment that's needed in order for something like this to uh, to actually happen? So so what's actually happening, um, we've had in um, Manchester, we've had what, what they've called an agile experiment, which has been not about the technology, it's been about finding out what customers, people who are travelling, would actually do if they were given these options. So instead of you developing an app, they were just told to travel and they were given journey advice uh, and um, the costs were covered through a through the Man- one of the Manchester travel scheme cards and things like that and their travel patterns were followed they were sort of given nudges to walk when the weather was nice and things like that to see whether it would having this kind of opportunity would change the way they travel and that's what they found was that there was a lot more enthusiasm for using buses for instance um, once they were integrated into a package of travel um, and there was things that people hadn't ever thought of there's a there's actually a, a demand responsive um, minibus service that um, they were able to access through this scheme and people didn't even know it existed so they were quite excited by that there was taxis were booked so that was, it was interesting. It was very small scale, but it was about the kind of customer experience and not just about technology. So from this, what, what needs to be there on the ground for something like this to actually be successful? I think you need public transport operators to be part of the, um, the offer. Um, some of the research that I've been doing has been for the annual survey of mobility as a service, which is about to be published by Landor Links. And that research was quite interesting because there's a lot of enthusiasm for mobility as a service from uh, public sector organisations and consultants working with um, transport authorities for this kind of way of, you know, improving transport options for people. But what they see as mobility as a service is basically the four core things that they see is public transport, walking, cycling and taxis. So those uh, and other things, you know, down the line, but those are the four most important um, components. Uh, but what I found with my research was that it was much harder to get any response from public um, transport operators. So um, if you've got one set of people seeing this as a solution, and but the operators that, on which they're pinning their hopes to provide part of that service not really being that interested, then there's a bit of tension between the opportunity and the way that it's going to be delivered in the future. You mentioned in that response the environment that could be required for mobility as a service to happen. But yet, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't really happened in somewhere you'd have thought it would happen, which would be London. So what's happening there? So in London, um, Transport for London regards the Oyster system and, and the Transport for London system as providing mobility as a service, essentially. And in a lot of ways, it's got a very strong um, core of public tra- integrated public transport, uh, which 
you know, you can use one single card to get around it. It's very convenient for Londoners. They don't really understand what, what we're doing in the rest of the country, frankly, because it seems so efficient and, and it works. But then you've also got, um, UCL has published a report about, um, transport for London and mobility as a service and looked at, you know, if you wrapped in other things like car and bike sharing and, and car clubs and other options, would you actually be able to persuade more people to give up their personal car uh, and their answer was a definitive yes so I think Transport for London has got the core but maybe not the add-ons whereas the rest of the country has got kind of like lots of opportunities but not the tra- public transport core and and so somehow we you know we need to look at and learn on both sides. Yeah and TFL is moving to this sort of innovation space where it's partnering with other innovators mm-hmm. rather than owning all the innovation themselves so I see things like City Mapper, mm-hmm. who have done some work in integrating some of these other modes into their journey planning. So uh, things like dockless bike companies that are exploding across London at a um, pretty frequent basis, they're integrating those into their service as well. So working with TfL uh, and other providers to make some of that come true in their service, their platforms? I think TfL's open data has definitely facilitated a lot of transport innovation. And what you're talking about, the, the having the all the doc, all the bikes dockless and, and the Santander docked bike system on one app is, is a really useful thing because if you, um, if you like me, have 15 different transport apps, then, you know, you, you kind of get a bit fed up eventually and you stop wanting to download another app when you go somewhere else. Uh, and when your um, one app updates and forgets your login details and things like that, you, you sort of want to throw it in a bin, frankly. So I think there is a kind of, there is probably a role for more integration of apps Um rather than just leaving it into this explosion of different apps. Um, one of the things that's quite interesting about the mobility service innovation we've had so far, uh, WIM, for instance, it works in the West Midlands as a kind of full, you know, public transport, car club, uh, bike share and car hire app. But the things that aren't West Midlands transport actually will work anywhere that those services are provided. So, for instance, Next Bike launched into WIM, or will launch into WIM in the autumn. And as soon as that happens, you'll be able to book a Next Bike anywhere that there is a Next Bike through WIM. So, if you go to Cardiff, if you go to Berlin, you'll be able to get your Next Bike through WIM. So, it's it's kind of a simpler sort of way of accessing transport. And in a world of great complication, where you've got like an explosion of apps then i can see how that could be quite attractive to people who haven't got that much memory on their phone uh you know it's a sort of like it's a it's a convenience isn't it it's one of the clear key benefits i can see of mobility services is that integration or consolidation of um platforms apps service providers whatever into the one place um, which is very convenient for someone who uses multiple different modes of transport on a regular basis as a means of getting people out of their cars and reducing dependency on and, and ownership of, of cars, I suppose my challenge to it is are people ha, what's people's willingness to pay for that convenience and you know how expensive is this is this service typically and uh, are people willing to pay for it to not use their cars? I think with almost everything that we've seen in transport, then providing things cheaply is a way to get people to adopt them. And I, I, I think providing expensive services isn't going to be a way of getting people to change their travel behaviour. I'll give you a case in point. I'm not one for 
um, downloading apps anymore because I've got so many of them. But I went to Scotland and I needed to get a bus. And the bus was about two-thirds of the price if I bought it through an app. So I was reluctantly happy to download that app because it saved me quite a bit of money. Um, but until I realised that, I was just going to pay in cash, which for um, the bus company is a lot less efficient in a lot of ways. So yes, so that's just a personal example. And that, you know we've seen it through Uber. Uber has basically provided discounted taxi fares. Yes, it's a great app and yes, it's very convenient to use. But a lot of its business model has been about providing a, 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 a an inexpensive service to people to um, gain customers and to build its customer base. And, you know, so I think we can't discount that as a uh, expense as a factor in adoption. So, that, yeah, I, I think that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is that uh, the car industry has been moving towards this sort of service-based model for quite a long time. And people that, you know, 90% of registrations, of new registrations in the UK are um, made through some kind of monthly payment type finance for a car. So the car industry is moving towards income streams and people are also realising that, you know, it costs you £150 or £350 a month for a car. So there is a, you know, at some point, People do do that, do the maths. Not not all of them, and not everyone, but there are people who will do the maths and say, "Oh well, if it's costing me three hundred and fifty quid for a car, but two hundred pounds for a travel car, then maybe there is a point to switching." Um, but yeah, I think there's a you know there's quite a lot of work to be done on the marketing and the pricing and the um, way of getting people to adopt mobility as a service. So, what does the future timeline look like for mobility as a service and? It's expansion in the UK and driving more adoption, I suppose, as a means of getting people or reducing people's dependency on their own cars. I think it's actually quite hard to see a very direct timeline for mobility as a service adoption because you've got lots of different factors at play. You've got cities and regions um, that would like to see more change in the way that people travel. So if, if cities and regions adopt kind of um, mobility as a service type services, then you could see a, a, a sort of quite a driven public um, agenda towards mobility as a service. Um, or you could see a, a route that goes entirely via capital investment, which could be quite slow or quite changeable. I mean, we've seen, for instance, investment in the dockless bike systems where they've kind of been quite aggressively spreading across the UK. Then suddenly their investors have said, no, no, you need to be making a profit rather than just capturing eyeballs and bubs on bikes. And so they're retracting from a number of their markets. Um, so you've got to kind of like at the moment, it's not very obvious which way it'll be, whether it'll be driven by investment or driven by a public agenda. You have to also factor in the fact that a lot of money is being spent on autonomous vehicle development, but not by any stretch of the imagination as much on things that are more about behaviour change and changing the way that we access transport like mobility as a service. What should be the role of potential funders? So I, I see in other technology, transport, innovation projects, things like autonomous vehicles, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, there's a, a number of pilots and projects, mm -hmm. proof of concepts being funded by organisations like Innovate UK, like Transport Systems Catapult, etc. And and it seems to be fewer in the mobility as a service field. What could change with that or what would you like to see in that area? I think it's really important that there are 
pilots and trials that enable public transport operators to realise that there's a big market through mobility as a service or that they can access more people through mobility as a service. And so, you know, that, that kind of ability to look at uh, back offices and um, the costs that they're talking about would be really important because one of the things that I hear when I talk to public transport operators is that they don't currently see the business case for mobility as a service. They see it as another layer of cost uh, and it's partly to do with the way that ticketing works at the moment and the um, the fact that operators work in quite siloed ways rather than um, across areas and we and outside of London you don't have um, tickets that will work from one operator to another and things like that so there needs to be m- more opportunities to create um, situations where operators can operate via mobility as a service platforms and and try this out because at the moment they have very very tight margins. Um, you know, we've seen quite big losses in some of the groups, uh, and so they're not willing to invest money that they maybe don't even have on something that may or may not work, or may some of them see that their captured customers could end up being someone else's customer at the end of the day. And personally, I don't think that's a, a, as much of a problem as the, as it's being seen as. But that is one of the fears in the industry. Do you see that reflected in engagement with mobility mobility as a service in the places in the UK where it's taking part? You you mentioned already um, sort of local authorities slash public sector bodies um, being being heavily involved and engaged and some of the private uh, sector or privately owned public transport operators not being so. Do, do Do you see that reflected sort of a in, in projects across the country? So the evidence for that is definitely the Navigogo project that we mentioned in uh, Dundee. That did not involve the local bus operator at any point during the inception uh, because they did not want to be involved. So that's quite a strong sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, negative um, uh, experience of involving public transport in, in mobility as a service. I think it may be changing, but definitely over the last year, um when I when I was talking to people for the first edition of the annual survey, there was a really nice, interesting project in South End, which involved a, the car club and the bike share scheme, um, but they couldn't get the, the transport operator involved. So, you know, the, the, I, I, I've heard a number of different um, sort of, you know, on the ground uh, bits of feedback that it has been hard to engage. And I think that may be changing, but it, it can't happen quickly enough as far as I'm concerned. And if you put the case for mobility as a service to those those operators um you know what would you what would you say to them about uh, the business case for getting involved in mobility as a service uh the business case is that um if people are given options to travel um they tend to do so and they tend to travel over more modes so if you buy a um, a bus and rail ticket, then you might use both of them, even if you were only intending to use one um, originally. And if you know that you can get back from your destination back home easily on any of the services, you're much more likely to set off in the first place than to think that you'll drive and drive home because it's more convenient. And I think, you know, those are the kind of behaviour things, but translating those into numbers is quite hard. And, I, and that's where some of the interesting trials, like the Manchester Agile trial, where they've actually sort of said, you know, got demonstrable um, 
evidence of people saying, yes, we would use buses more if we had this option are quite important. The Navigogo um, in Dundee, when they interviewed the trial participants at the end, they said, well, if you had bus as an option on this, what you know, how would this change and influence your travel patterns? And they were, some of them were saying that they would buy all of their transport through the Navigogo, including the bus, and they would, you know, they would use buses more through the Navigogo app. So I think the evidence is building up, and hopefully that will become compelling for uh, bus operators to become involved, uh, and, and, you know, and train operators. But I, yes, it, it's getting out of those silos that's the issue. We have to talk about data and particularly open data of course um there's clearly a huge dependency for mobility as a service to work on the consumption of data and and open data in in many ways it requires a platform for increased sharing of data between and across transport organizations but what about the opportunities that mobility as a service creates in terms of data and open data and, and new data so I think, you know, we've seen in Transport for London, for instance, the um, opportunities that providing open data have created. You know, you've got the city mapper with multiple modes on it uh, as a journey planner. Um, you've got ways that um, transport can, if transport providers provide feeds of open data, then that can be taken and used, by, say, by the train line, for instance. It's got all the trains on it and there's an interesting you know thing that people don't they want one booking portal so open data is the sort of it's the facilitation of mobility as a service and you're seeing that sort of like bubbling up towards sort of mobility as a service um p- futures you know things that are sort of proto mobility as a service um actually you could think of it even more broadly. You could think of providing open data as as a way of attracting new markets that if you're able to provide open data as a bus service, as a bike share scheme, as a taxi firm, then you could be um, capturing new customers through different mobility as a service apps. Because I think one of the interesting things about mobility as a service is that it could be quite pro customer specific. So if you're um, one of the examples that we've seen um, that we haven't covered is Project Onwards, which is about persuading people to give up their driving licenses as they reach incapacity where they can't actually drive anymore. And obviously that's hugely emotional and difficult practically. So they need to have some kind of um, way of, um, you know, facilitating future travel that means that it's easy for them to do that emotionally and practically. So if you if you're providing a service that those people could use if you provide that as open data and the project onwards can then take those data feeds and facilitate transport options for those people then you suddenly got a market uh, and i think i think that's that's the opportunity of open da- of open data and mobility as a service is that you don't really necessarily know who your mo- market is in quite the same way as you used to if you're a transport provider but you could have a new one that you're not currently aware of. Um, and, and that's, that's a very interesting thing for me. What a great way to end the podcast. Um, Beata, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for coming in to tell us all about mobility as a service. Thank you, Neil. All Aboard is an ODI Leeds production, hosted by Neil McClure, edited by Stuart Lowe, music credit to Lata. If you want to continue the conversation, or if you have suggestions for future topics, you can get in touch with us on Twitter using at ODI Leads 
and the hashtag all aboard.